Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and Brian and I are here. Brian, thanks for driving over this morning for us, buddy. Yeah, you're welcome. Good to be here. Good, Good morning. to see you. Yeah, you too. So Brian had a little delay this morning with getting kids situated up. Yeah. I think it was a record for the best leave everything at home that we've we've had to date. Camp left his lunchbox, backpack, and water bottle. Just going to school. He's just present and accounted <laughs> for today. Yeah, here. Yeah. Hi. Good morning. The water bottle thing. I know I mentioned this before we started. Yeah. The water bottle phenomenon is just beyond <laughs> me. How we all survive to adulthood without a dedicated water bottle at school. We did it. Tom, do you remember the first time you saw an actual bottle of water, like for sale? No, I, I don't. I'd, I'd have to sit down and struggle. I don't remember going into a gas station to buy a bottle of water in all the years that I ever filled up gas or drove a car or whatever. How old do you think you were the first time you bought a bottle of water? I mean, you had to be well into adulthood, right? Yeah, I probably was in my 30s. What do you think, Brian? Um, probably 2000s. I mean, I'm a, I, I grew up in the 80s, so if it was a bottle of water, it probably had some kind of advertising on it and some kind of candy. You know, it wasn't just water. Yeah, I just in the eighties. I mean, if sun kissed or something. I don't know, but I just figured I was fully grown. Well, when did Dasani come out? Wasn't that yeah, like I don't the know. first? I don't know. I don't know. Mountain Valley Spring Water. I remember that one. Ozarka. The, yeah, Ozarka. Like Mountain Valley Spring Water. Didn't they have like a green bottle or something? Probably late nineties, early two thousands. It had to be. Yeah, it wasn't in the eighties, or we. I wasn't aware of it. No, I don't remember having any of those around the house or anything like that. I, I don't. And now that's... I mean, oh, it's... Uh, it's uh, Our kids will never remember a day where they don't have something around them that's a bottle of water or a water bottle or something else that they're putting water in. Nobody will remember that. The water fountain in the hallway at school that didn't have a cooler on it or anything, just straight out the pipe, mm-hmm. so it was some level of lukewarm. I was like drinking out of the hose in the yard. It's the same type of thing. The days of a line at the water fountain have come and gone. Oh, yeah. And that was just a thing. You went out to recess and came back, and everybody lined up at the water yeah. fountain. A few kids would throw up the water back into it. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't care. You're like, I'm next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was just life, right? <laughs> oh, man. Kids throwing up in elementary school. That brings Salt. back some good memories. That and the, the sawdust. Yeah, Remember whatever that? that stuff was that they'd put on it. <laughs> That's like it was dedicated for elementary schools. You never yeah. saw that stuff anywhere else. It was that like, recalls some know. odors. I'm bringing back some oh, yeah. odors in the back of my mind. I don't know if the vomit was worse or the little sawdust concoction mixture that they used to clean it up. Man, tit for tat, I think. Scrape it up. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you walk into an elementary school, does it not just bring you back? Like there's a smell there. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, every time I walk in one, I'm like. Mm, that's what mine smelled like. I'm, I'm beyond <laughs> that at this point now, thankfully. Yeah, beyond yeah. elementary school at this point. I guess we will forego our question this morning since I <laughs> oh, backed my way into a discussion of water bottles and yeah. water in well, general. Well, if you have one, I'm always open for the question. <clears throat> I don't know that I had a great one, so yeah. we'll... Uh, that was pretty good right there anyway. Yeah, we'll let that serve. 
All right, Brian, why don't you tell us where we're at then from a cotton standpoint? I think that's a good place to yeah. start or as good as any. Well, like like most years, we're kind of in that area where it depends on where you're standing in the state. We, we have some pretty good-looking cotton. We have some that's very poor. But uh, one thing I wanted to draw attention to was this, you know, everybody's aware of the, the drought we had, this late season, really hot and dry weather. And depending on the growth stage, how bad it affected it. But there are some areas in south central Mississippi that are, I mean, almost just done for. I would say lucky to pick 100, 200 pounds just due to the fact it hadn't had a rain since the 2nd of July or something like that. And the situation is, so the bowls are opening, but they're not mature. And it's just not a harvestable crop there. And, I mean, we're talking about cotton that's at the permanent wilting point right at it, and it's not time for it to be. So that bowl is just drying out and cracking it's open. Just, yeah, and then if you look at the whatever moisture was in that bowl, it's pretty much rotten the seed, and it's not going to fluff by any means. I think the latest USDA report has zero acres that are poor and some, like, you know, fair. But I would say this w- would qualify as very poor. I mean, it's not limited to cotton either. I mean, there, there are some guys that are baling soybean stalks for hay, and peanuts just as bad too. Ouch. Just because there's nothing there. But outside of that, you get into the Black Prairie region where they had the hail damage, and they've had several things come against them from periods of wet weather all through June, July, when they're trying to fruit and it's throwing everything off because of cloudy weather, and they're kind of counting on a top crop. And then if you pan up to the north-central part of the state, it looks pretty good. And uh, further north you go, really good bowl retention. We have OVT in Senatobia that looks really good. Not limited to that. There's some growers I talked to have a good-looking crop. And then all the irrigated cotton in the Delta, for the most part, looks really good. What's the estimate on acres this year? The last I saw was 380,000, which was down from the first projection. So what's that about? at least 30% off of last year. Right. And in light of that, the cotton in South Mississippi that affected by the drought, what percent of that 380 do you think that is? You know, that's a good question. I've been asked that. There's a fair amount of cotton down there, but to give a percent, I'd probably have to get a better handle on the county. I would say 10 to 15% at the most. So less than 20. We'll yeah, but 100% of that area is tough. It's tough. Now, there's some irrigated cotton down there that was planted earlier that'll it'll make a crop, but I'd say that's the minority down there. Tom, I know you run around. Have you seen, have you been down there recently? <clears throat> I haven't been down there since we came back from the MAIC and saw some not far out of Loosedale and some of those places, and it looked pretty good at that point, yeah. but that was, you know, that Five was a month ago. ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was, you know, most of those guys were hanging in there, hanging in there. If we just get one more rain, it, it'll take us that much further, and that rain never came, and, and a lot of it. Yeah, and if you're telling me it's really, really dry down there, I'm not planning on jumping in the truck to make a trip because the things that I would be looking for are going to need moisture. And we've seen some weird things, um, which – we always see what we call cavitation, where the fruit will kind of upsize right by the, the fruiting branch. Usually happens earlier on when the plant knows it can't take it and hold it, so it's going to drop it. But we've seen with just the function of the heat, the water availability, the air pocket will form in the little fruiting branch, and it'll just kind of bend over. And then you're like, well, is that coming off or staying? What, like, what's going to happen with that? But then over time, it'll kind of get a brown spot in that bend, and then it ultimately just kind of hang there, probably fall off, that it'll turn black. 
had been just widespread, but it's just one of those things that goes along with the situation that's there. Around here, with the two rounds of really high temperatures that we've had, one about a month or so ago, and then the one last week, I thought last week it was a lot more humid with the 100-plus degrees early in the morning, late in the afternoon, than it was the first round, you know, that one in July, Tom. Mm-hmm. I felt like the wind was blowing more and kind of kept the humidity down. So even though it was the temperatures were excessive, human-wise, the heat index wasn't. But this most recent one last week was tough. Man. No, it didn't feel as unmanageable about a month ago as it did last week. It was rough. And I think it cooled off more at night on that first round. I would I agree with that. Because right, yeah. I, I went out early – Every morning last week, and it was still 80. Yeah. It might have dipped in the 70s after the sun come up, but came up at like at, at 5 a.m., it was 80, 82. And that's what I wanted you to touch on, Brian, those temperatures in light of the growth stage of our irrigated cotton. Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know, it depends on the growth stage, planting date. When you don't get any break from the stressor for 24-hour periods, days on end, then that's going to put that plant in jeopardy of – just thinking about the next generation. Like, what can I hold? What can I put my energy to to conserve until I'm out? So anything that is vulnerable or not as far along is going to shed it off or do what it can to make it. Last year, the later cotton fared better because we were so hot and dry early. And the earlier cotton, was it was compromised greatly compared to. And this year, not quite as clearly divided, but a lot of the later planted cotton that was subjected to the the temperatures and humidity, just because it was, it had less fruit that was just set, you know, and it was going to abort that. And so it's just kind of complicated because you have some areas that are banking on a top crop. And then depending on whether or not they got, as, if they could water or if they had those high heat and humidity days and nights at that time, probably ultimately determine their success. And I'm not going to pretend like I've walked around in any cotton fields you know, in the past couple of weeks, but Tom, in light of the temperatures and canopy density, were we a little bit early for worries with bowl rot, or, or <clears throat> would that occur a little bit later? Definitely depends on planting date. I think it's more so if you get a bunch of additional moisture, you definitely can get into that type of situation. I think we've been so hot and dry that the bulk of that is not necessarily a terrible concern at this point. Of course, the irrigated acres, you can see a lot more lower canopy disease in some of those situations just because I think the temperature difference between above the canopy and within the canopy can relate to some of those bowl-type rot situations. But the cotton I've walked the last couple of weeks, I didn't see much of that at all. And I made that comment about the humidity being higher on this latest round of heat, but then that's relative to I think it definitely has, and I couldn't quote numbers to you, but it hasn't just been choking, disabling humidity like you can get at times in August. No, and there's still been... Even though the temperature has been really high. There's still been a decent breeze in some places, even if you've had high humidity. That's been the really strange thing the last few weeks is even though it's been 100 degrees and the humidity's been up, there's been a breeze. And I think that relates to a lot of that. I mean, the one thing I will say is the... The aerial eight mildew situation is kind of a head scratcher. There's about a four county area, Grenada, Tallahatchie, Yalabusha, and one other one at Lafayette up there that there's been a substantial amount of aerial eight mildew in some of those fields in some particular parts of that. And I think one little area of Montgomery County as well, but they received more rainfall 
the last six to eight weeks than some other parts of the state. And I think that really attributed to then the humidity within some of those field situations and allowed that disease to kind of get going. And it's not been bad in most of those field situations. There was one field we were, we were concerned about did suggest that they spray and that we'll probably talk more about that in the fall and winter. Brian, you mentioned the difference between this year and last year. And I think one thing that in our little area right here around Stoneville that we got last year was by this point in the year, the rain was done and it didn't rain again till November which was good for harvest, definitely. Mm-hmm. But I know when we start moving toward defoliation that the nuances in the weather from year to year really play into the choice of programs and treatments for a defoliation event. Yeah. Since I've been doing this, every year's been different. I guess the common thread is there's not a whole lot of new products out there. I was thinking about that on the way here. It's just like playing a game of chess in your pawn being actually a, for – I guess if you want to use trade names, drop and prep, uh, going out with high temperatures, you have a healthy plant that's going to take it in, you know, it'd be your first move. And that, you know, works really well when the temperatures and environmental factors uh, all line up. But here lately, that hadn't been the case. It's always some kind of nuance that complicates it. So this year, what I've seen on the first round of defoliation, it was this permanent wilting point. Like, what do I do? How am I going to get these leaves off? And uh, I've talked to several consultants. We've tried different strategies. A lot of times we're really worried about folex or tribufos going out high temperatures, worried about sticking leaves. But we've been pretty successful using a lower end rate of that with your thiodazerone and a quart or so of uh, ethophon just to try to get something out there to get the leaves off because it's hard to penetrate those leathery leaves. So, I mean, basically... The rules stay the same. You want to use your hormonal products when you can because you have a lot better growth inhibition with that. I think we'll see a trend of that when we get into our healthier cotton that we're going to defoliate, you know, just a more standard approach. I'm not a huge adjuvant or AMS user because I feel like the product's going to do its job when it's right. But this was a year where if you were going to use just a drop product, anything to help penetrate that thick cuticle, which AMS, there's been some success with that. It's just situational, and it depends. And that could be between fields, between farms, or within a field. You think about a pivot circle, you know, that can com- confound the issue. You might have to treat the outside of the pivot circle a little different because you, ultimately you want the best defoliation job you can get. Because, I mean, in some of this stuff, I mean, you can expect trashier cotton because there's just no way to get a good job. In addition to the cuticle, it you know, in these real drought-stricken areas, if that plant has shut down, it's not moving anything through the plants. Of course, thick cuticle comes along with that, but just that plant being shut down, because most of these have you know, herbicide-type effects, whether they are. Yeah. There's definitely the hormones, but then there are other ones that are yeah. more herbicidal. And if that plant's not doing anything, there's nothing going in that plant. Yeah, that's right. So if you're using a herbicidal product, it's inflicting injury to cause the hormonal reaction to make the abscission layer. But if nothing's happening, it's just, what's it going to do, burn it? That's right. It might come off. And then on the flip side of that, if you're waiting on a hormonal product to get into the plant to synthesize boroethylene, and then that's not going to be very effective either if nothing's happening. Because, I mean, these plants have been, in some cases, without moisture running through for months, a month and a half, six weeks. Well, maybe not that long, but a month anyway. Well, how's that changed your one-shot versus two-shot strategy then? 
Well, we did this year earlier. The guys I'm talking to, they tried a one shot, and that really didn't work. So it ended up being a two shot. But I think by trial and error, because you don't ever really know how well it's going to work till after you've applied it. The first little batch, you're it's kind of like your test run because you can come back and clean up your first mistake, or if it was a mistake, and try something else a second time. And then after you've done that, you might be enlightened into the fact that I'm going to do this on a one-shot deal. And that's usually on your stuff that you're trying not to make. You're trying to minimize trips, minimize input costs. Not to say you can't do an effective one-shot and some healthier cotton where the crop condition is good. I mean, there's still some guys that do that. But a lot of times they start out with the one-shot program and then they see some areas they need to, well, we need to clean this up with the two. But by and large... Most people are going to go with the two-shot program and just count on it. Lay that out, Brian. On our big irrigated acres, certainly we're still a couple weeks away But by the time we drop this episode. But I guess lay out a scenario, kind of summertime temperatures persist or summertime conditions persist, and then maybe if we get into more of a fall, not late, cold, and, and wet, but just maybe more rainy conditions or something that can come up later September. Yeah, I guess the perfect case scenario, which we hope for, and it usually happens anything you defoliate September, given an average year where you have nighttime temperatures above 65, daytime temperatures in the 90s, you have your plant is able to take in the defoliant, just a good scenario. I'm going to go with 1 to 40, 1 to 42 thiazron, and I got a a comment for that in a minute. And then if my canopy is open enough, I'm going to put as much uh, at the font out that first shot as I can, 24 ounces to 32 ounces per acre to try to get those bowls opening up. And then a week to, you know, 10 days to two weeks later, depending on how well it's working, come back and put my remaining amount of ethafon out and either some more thiodazeron or a PPO, depending on if it rained, there's regrowth. If all that comes together, you're going to have, it's going to do a good job. But (laughs) it's kind of funny. I was talking with my counterpart, Tyson Raper, the other day. And I was like, why do we go in ounces per acre all year long? And then when it gets to defoliation, people start saying, well, I'm going one to four, one to 32, one to 24. And you're just flipping that math around. It's like, ah. I'm not going to comment on that because the people that talk to me know what my feelings are on that. And I'm just going to leave that there, Tom. (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty good at mental math, but I'm like. I know one to 16. I know (laughs) one to four. I guess one to eight. And one to eight. Those are mine. Yeah, but 1 to 12 and 1 to 20, I'm like, wait a second now. This is not the metric system. Well, now that you've opened it up, I'll keep talking. (laughs) When you talk to Don and he spouts out something like 1 to 27 and a half, I don't (laughs) have no concept of what that is. I have no idea. Yeah, that's just a side note, but I think it's funny. I guess it keeps it interesting. Tom just remains speechless. He, He doesn't have a dog in this hunt. All right, Brian, take that program and modify it a little bit should we get into some type of wet pattern. Okay. And we'll, and we'll reserve the cold for later on. Uh, there's a couple of things to consider with that. Obviously, one school of thought is, well, I want to go in and get this out there before it rains. But if it's going to cool off and rain, you're, from my experience, you're not gaining a whole lot by putting that out there because it's going to work a whole lot better. Say you had a four-day rainy patch. Temperatures were in the 60s, 70s, but just didn't really get much cooler than that, but not much warmer either. If I knew that was coming, I'd just wait on that to pass and then put it out, especially depending on the forecast. And I'd still go 
with a hormonal product that had regrowth inhibition for the foreseeable future and then pick up where I left off. In my experience, you're not gaining anything in those four or five days that is wet and cloudy, and you run the risk of not getting the appropriate rain fastness. Then if you want to take that up another notch and say, well, now the temperatures are starting to dip into the 40s, uh, 50s, this uh, mid to late October, that's when it gets a little confusing or confounding depending on if you if it warms up or not. Trubifos is a good product. It's going to knock. This going to work well in those situations. It's going to take the leaves off. However, last year we ran into this where it was not working like we wanted it to, and going out with either a homemade Genstar or a homemade type Genstar if it wasn't available with the Diuron being the driver of that. In that situation, I had a lot more success getting the leaves off, and this is when temperatures were in the upper 40s at night and 70s in the day just not getting a whole lot of movement. And in that situation, there's no great option. It's not just like, wow, you know, this is what you got to go to. Because there could have been something last year that made that work better, where this year might be something where running with a Folex product alone might work better. It just depends. So for us, when we're doing OVTs, we might spray it, and it might be, you know, we might not see it again for a week, and you're just hoping that it works. So you got to keep that in mind with something without any kind of uh, regrowth inhibition. One thing I did not mention in a in the scenario where, let's say, you, you put your first application out and it worked pretty good and you had a little skirt at the bottom, but you're not that worried about it, but it did rain for four or five days. You had some nitrogen under there. The plant kind of kicked back off and you had some healthy regrowth. That's where I like to use a PPO in there, maybe a little bit of thiodazeron just to take care of the skirt. And then depending on if you need opening bowls, you could put your remaining ethafon out. Where can folks find any print information on that? Is that still on the Mississippi Crop Situation blog? Yeah, there's a uh, Mid-South Defoliation Guide. I think the latest one, Tyson and I are actually working on it this week. It'll probably be on the blog early next week, and but it'll be basically the same as the last one. We're just going to kind of do a little bit of work on the rates and getting narrow some things up a little bit. But uh, Mid-South Defoliation Guide has a lot of scenarios, products, use rates, and pretty much everything we talked about. And if you got a, one of those from previous years, then like you said, the products are not changing all that much. So it'd be a little bit of tweak, but the overall programs yeah. will be very similar. There was a PPO added last year, Reviton, and it'll be in there this year. And to my knowledge, there's nothing new from the uh, last year's. Hi, Brian. We appreciate it. Yeah, man. I'm uh, glad you were able to get camp straightened out this morning, plus make it over here. <laughs> kind of doesn't sound like you got them straightened out. Well. <laughs> Wait, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? <laughs> he, got, he got him through today. Well, he was dad cheerleader for the time being, and hey, you'll be all right at school. You're president and accounted for. A true, an officer won't come after you. We appreciate it, man. Yeah, man. Thank you. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.